Welcome and greetings to this session with Grace Point Church. Uh, I'm glad you're here with us today, and welcome to our church family as well as any guests who may be with us today. Uh, today I'm coming to you from my study in the offices of Grace Point Church. And as you can see, there are a lot of books behind me, but I need to remind you that uh, what Solomon said about books. Ecclesiastes 12.12, 12, Solomon said this, But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and the excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. <laughs> That's called the seminary verse, and uh, so these books can be wearying to the body. Well, we are glad you're with us here today as we continue our study in the book of Philippians. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to turn to the letter of Philippians in the New Testament so you can follow along as I <clears throat> uh, we go through this passage together. Uh, Philippians chapter 3. Well, I want you to know that I'm very tired. Yes, I'm tired. And I want you to know why. Well, for several years I've been blaming it on Middle age, uh, you know, lack of iron-poor blood, or having iron-poor blood, lack of vitamins, air pollution, artificial sweetener, uh, dieting, uh, you know, yellow waxy buildup, a dozen other problems, the pandemic perhaps, and uh, so you, I feel tired. But I found out now a little bit more of the reason. I'm tired because I'm overworked. Uh, the population of this country is somewhere around 332 million people. And out of that 332 million, about 180 million are retired. This leaves around 150 million of us to do the work. And, uh, but there are 125 million in school, which leaves about 25 million to do the work. Of this total, 15 million are unemployed. This leaves about 10 million people to do all the work. And four million are in the armed forces, leaving six million to do all the work. And uh, take from that total the five million people who work for the state and federal government, and that leaves about a million people to do all the work. There are about 888,000 people in hospitals, so that leaves about 12,000 to do the work. Uh, but now there are 11,998 people in prisons, that leaves just two people to do all the work in this country, you and me. And you're sitting there listening to me. No wonder I'm tired. <laughs> but uh, we live in a performance-oriented culture, don't we? And uh, we live in a society which values performance and the ability to get things done. And in fact, the Bible says, the man urges his bread uh, by the sweat of his brow. But the danger is that we can identify with our work rather than who God says we are. We are a performance-based society and culture, and that's a good thing on one level because otherwise nobody would get any work done. Uh, but the danger is for us as individuals is that uh, we take our performance and uh, plus others' approval of us, and then we equate that with somehow with our self-worth. Uh, that's a false equation. Our performance plus others' approval equals our self-worth. And of course, we know that 
anytime you uh, are in a social situation and people always, especially for us men, people always ask, well, what do you do for work? And that's what they mean. And it's not who are you, but what do you do, do for work? And so our identity is really tied up in our either our uh, vocation or uh, who we are as a person in that, in uh, what we do, our performance. And that is a dangerous equation to apply to Christianity. And when we apply this equation to our Christianity, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, this equation uh, causes us consternation with our eternal security and safety. If you take your copy of God's Word to Philippians chapter 3, we're going to see some things about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is writing here, and again, he's continuing with his encouragement to the people of Philippi and to us also. Remember, Philippians is really a book about how to live the Christian life with joy, with great joy in living the Christian life. And if we approach the Christian life as a performance-based acceptance before God or approval before God, uh, we can lose our joy quite rapidly. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 27, this first imperative verb that occurs in Philippians where Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, gospel is uh, translated as good news. It means the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. And of course, the good news of Jesus Christ is that he took our place on the cross of Calvary and died in our place, and he gained the victory over sin and death. And by believing in him for eternal life, uh, we have that eternal life, everlasting life. The whole Gospel of John uh, reiterates that again and again. Of course, here in Philippians, the Apostle Paul is writing to people who've already believed in Jesus Christ for their salvation. And uh, at this point in the epistle, in this letter, the Apostle Paul is going to combat some false teaching. And we are surrounded with false teaching just like the early believers at the Church of Philippi were. Remember, Philippians was a Roman colony, and Roman citizenship was one of the privileges the residents of Philippi uh, enjoyed in this day. And the Apostle Paul is reminding them of their citizenship, which is in heaven, and we're going to talk about that later in another message, but uh, the Apostle Paul has really encouraged these people uh, that they need to be careful. And part of uh, this conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ is to understand the gospel and stand firm in the gospel and, and embrace the, our identity, embrace the reality of who we are as Christians. Again, this letter is written to believers, and so by extension it comes down to us through the centuries, and it's very appropriate for us in living out the Christian life. And so in verses 1 through 3, as all the verses I'm going to cover today of chapter 3, uh, because this is a, a packed full portion of Philippians, of course I'm finding that the whole book is really, uh, really packed full of wonderful truth. And we see here that uh, there's two concerns on Paul's mind. First of all, there were certain people attempting to undermine his ministry, and Paul had to counter these false teachers. In fact, he's exposing false teachers in chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. 
And we'll see that in a series of messages here over the next couple times, couple of weeks. Uh, but the Apostle Paul, remember, planted this church in Philippi in the second missionary journey back in uh, Acts chapter 16. And if you read through that portion of his second missionary journey, the Apostle Paul uh, the, the, the Jewish Judaizers, those who were trying to, they were false teachers, they were trying to apply Jewish Old Testament law uh, to the Christian faith. And so they would teach that you had to become technically a Jewish person in the Old Testament sense first, and then you could believe in Jesus. And it was false teaching. Anytime uh, anything is added to the good news of Jesus Christ, that salvation is by grace through faith, and that when believing in Christ, we have everlasting life. We have the security of that. So we need to embrace the reality of our identity, the reality of our identity. And all of us have identifiable characteristics, whether it's our jobs, whether it's our families, our children, our parents. Uh, but what does God say about our identity? We need to embrace the reality of what it means to live out the Christian life. Let me pray, and then we will start. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you for guiding him to write these words for us today. Thank you for the church at Philippi, and thank you, Lord, for the people who are around the Apostle Paul and we pray, Lord, that we would take these things to heart, that we would uh, today even be encouraged in our walk with you, and that uh, our joy would be full because of your grace poured out upon our lives. And we pray for understanding of these uh, few verses that we're going to look at today. And Lord, that you would teach us through the power of your Holy Spirit and that we would recognize that uh, our self-worth is not based upon our performance or other people's approval of us, uh, but that is a false equation. And thank you for the, your word here today. Thank you for our country. We do pray for our president, others in leadership, that they would uh, have a heart to seek your will, and that we as believers in this country, as Christians, uh, we would be peacemakers, and that we would seek to see you glorified in all things. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen and amen. So we're talking about embracing the reality of our identity. And the Apostle Paul, in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, he starts with this word, finally, my brethren. And a brethren, of course, is not gender-specific, but it includes males and females, children, everybody involved at the church at Philippi. He says, finally, and we can misunderstand that word, finally. We think he's about going to be done. You know, we think this is going to be the conclusion. And yet there's over 40% of this little letter left when he says this. And we need to understand that it indicates uh, really not a final conclusion, but it says, well, it, it, you can translate it the furthermore, furthermore. He's made this argument about living the Christian life. He's demonstrated for us the basis of our unity, the humility of Christ and the submissiveness of Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul's life and then Timothy and Epaphroditus in chapter 2. And he's showing us uh, what it means. He's applying uh, the, the truth about what it means to uh, live and <clears throat> conducting ourselves to the glory of Jesus Christ, his gospel. And so we need to embrace the reality of our identity. And we should, uh, our identity, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, should cause you great delight, great joy. Look, he says, finally, my brethren, 
Rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is a safeguard to you. So again, he uses that term rejoice or joy. Again, 19 times in this little letter, uh, gladness, rejoicing. It's that mental capability of looking at our lives through the lens of Scripture, through the lens of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, and so to delight this command, and it's really verse 1 is like a bridge from chapter 2 into his confrontation <clears throat> with exposing the false teachers in chapter 3. And so he's reminding us before he gets into the some of the difficult things that he's got to deal with there at Philippi uh, to rejoice in the Lord. And again, I have to remind you that historically the Apostle Paul was in Rome, way to the west, and he was imprisoned in Rome. And he did, his future is very uncertain. He didn't know if he was going to survive or if he would be uh, martyred. And, but his desire was is to see Jesus Christ glorified in his life. And so he tells us to rejoice, be glad uh, in, in this, in this uh, approach, in this introduction here. Our identity, our identity should cause us great delight. It's a command to rejoice. That's a, that actually, that word rejoice is an imperative verb or command, as you will. And so uh, Garrison Keillor, the radio personality, uh, I'm quoting him here, he says, some people think it's difficult to be a Christian and to laugh, but I think it should be the other way around. God writes a lot of comedy, it's just that he has too many bad actors, unquote. And so there's this idea of rejoicing even in the midst of adversity and difficulty. So our identity should cause us to delight in Jesus Christ and the salvation we have. In verse 2, he reminds us that because of our identity, there is danger. There is danger. When you stand for Christ, when you try to live for Christ, when uh, living for him, uh, there is danger. And the danger comes when false teaching is exposed. Uh, every time that I've traveled to uh, unknown cities, unfamiliar places, uh, and if I'm out in the street, I try to have that street sense, you know, know who's around me, keep an eye on people. And in some places, I've even put my wallet, taken it out of my back pocket and put it in my front pocket uh, to secure, you know, my, my valuables in my wallet. And Paul warns us about spiritual pickpockets. I am put my wallet in the front pocket to protect myself from pickpockets, but Paul warns us about uh, spiritual pickpockets in verse 2. He's warning us to be vigilant because false teaching is like, likely to overtake us when we are uh, not really paying attention. So these false teachers are what uh, scholars call Judaizers. As I said before, they were Jewish people who wanted Gentile Christians to become like Jews in practice. And so the Apostle Paul is warning us of this. He says, Three times in verse 2, beware, 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 beware. And uh, repetition in Bible study is something to pay attention to. Now, if you use the NIV version, New International Version, you'll only see one warning, 
when in reality they've softened the impact of this verse by not translating the other two warnings in that, in that version. But he says, beware, beware, beware. In other words, pay attention. He's really emphasizing this in verse 2. And there's three things we are to be aware of. And the Apostle Paul identifies them as dogs, evil workers, and false circumcision. The Apostle Paul says, be aware of the dogs. You know, it's interesting that he uses it. He turns it back on these Judaizers because that was a, a, a Jewish complaint and an identity of Gentiles. They would call anybody who was not Jewish a dog. And uh, it was a reversal. The Apostle Paul reversed this upon these false teachers. Uh, most dogs in the ancient world were scavengers. They're not like our nice little lap dogs that uh, we have around our house. Uh, but they were scavengers. They fed on the garbage and filth, and they fought among themselves, and they menaced people. To the Jews, these canines were despised and unclean. Uh, that's why they called people dogs. And just like stray dogs, the Apostle Paul's false teaching opponents, these people were trying to undermine his ministry, were snapping at his heels and followed him from place to place. In fact, if you read through the second missionary journey, you see these false teachers following him from town to town and trying to undermine what he was teaching. And they were barking their false doctrines, if you will. They were dangerous troublemakers. They were false teachers, and they were adding a sense, a, a element of legalism to the Christian gospel. They thought it was absolutely necessary for the Gentile converts to Christianity to become circumcised and to observe Jewish Old Testament law. In effect, they were teaching that one must become a Jew before becoming a Christian. By calling them dogs, Paul used a term of reproach here and contempt that Jews commonly used for anybody who was not Jewish. In fact, in Revelation, the end of the Bible, in chapter 22, verse 15, the Apostle John uses dogs to refer to those excluded from the New, New Jerusalem and will spend eternity in a Christless eternity. And it's a serious, serious thing. So he says, beware of the dogs. And he's referring to these false teachers. They were, then secondly, he says, beware of the evil workers. Uh, literally, it means malicious laborers, evil workers. Uh, <clears throat> they were involved in malpractice. The literal meaning is malicious laborers. You know, in Matthew, uh, Jesus said he wants to send forth workers to the harvest, and that's the uh, good workers. And here he uses the same terminology, and they're called evil workers. They were Jewish, uh, involved in propaganda, essentially. They were extremist party in, of, called Judaizers in the early church that dogged Paul's uh, every move. Uh, the phrase suggests that they're car carrying on a parody of a Christian mission, like Jesus wants to send out workers into the harvest for the gospel, and yet these people were evil workers, and they were bent on doing evil to others, and that is always an indicator of a false, uh, a false teacher. Of, with false doctrine. And so beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers. And thirdly, in verse 2, beware of the false circumcision. Now remember, circumcision was a sign 
uh, to Israel, to Abraham, and to Israel that you were part of the covenant community. It was a physical act when a boy, child was eight days old, and it was a mark that distinguished Jewish males from the males all around them in the other nations. But Paul uses a different terminology. He's using a play on words here in verse uh, 3, and some of your translations probably reflect this. He says, beware of the false circumcision. And then in verse 3, he says, we are the true circumcision. Those are two separate words in the Greek, but it's a play on words. They sound a little bit alike. But here in verse 2, beware of the false circumcision means the bodily mutilators. The mutilators is what that means. And it's a different word than Paul, Paul uses in verse 3. Paul described his enemies as mutilators of the flesh. It means to mutilate, to cut into pieces. The Apostle Paul asserts this is a play on words that uh, these people were destructive with their false gospel. Anytime you add anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the simplicity of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him shall have everlasting life, and not perish, but have everlasting life. And that is the simplicity of the gospel, the kernel of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so these false teachers were adding to the gospel. And anytime anybody adds anything to the gospel, uh, they are mutilators of the flesh, mutilators of the truth. Uh, these Jews had lost the true meaning of God's covenant with Abraham. You can see that in Genesis 17.10. They made the Christian life a set of rules while neglecting the true gospel. They had so distorted the meaning of circumcision that they had something that become nothing but a useless surgery or a mutilation, and that's what they were doing to the gospel. Anyone who adds anything to the gospel as a requirement for salvation is a false teacher. Neither circumcision nor any other religious practice can save a person from his sin. Only belief in Jesus Christ can do that. You know, today we hear popular things, you must be, believe and be baptized, repent and believe, make Jesus Lord of your life, commit to him and believe. All of these additions to the gospel are mutilators of the gospel. And that's what the Apostle Paul says. In fact, in Galatians, which is an expansion on this whole thing, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 12 through 13, the Apostle Paul writes there, about these same false teachers, he says, I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. For you were called the freedom, brethren. Not only, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve, serve one another. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 29, the Apostle Paul expands on this whole idea of circumcision. And he reminds us that the circumcision, this metaphor for the Christian life, happens in our heart without human hands. And it's not from man, but it's from God. And that's the danger of trying to earn salvation. You know, if our performance plus God's approval equals our eternal life, uh, we've got it wrong. That's an addition to the gospel message. 
Max Anders uh, writes, a number of years ago, this is quoting him, Max Anders, he said, a number of years ago, I was in Mexico City uh, visiting the Central Square. There's a huge paved square surrounded by grand buildings on three sides. On one side is a great cathedral. I saw something on that visit which I understand is not all that unusual uh, in, that, in that great square, but it made a deep impression upon me. Uh, a person, a woman, was calling, crawling across the great square, palms and knees being gouged by the ancient stones which paved the square. After she crawled a while, she would stop, raise to her knees, pray for a while, then begin crawling a little further. The slow, painful crawl seemed to take forever and she, as she tried to appease God through her self-inflicted suffering, her performance, basically. He says, I saw similar sights in Guatemala. People brought gifts to the church and laid them on the altar, and then they knocked on the wood of the altar, trying to get God to notice their gift. They lit candles, poured wine as an offering, seeking God's, merit, God's favor, seeking to merit God's favor. You know, these examples are just sad reminders of how par, people, far, far people will go to win God's favor and try to earn His grace, which is unmerited favor, by the way. Yet we often fall into similar bondages as we try to please God. We fear that if we're irregular in our Bible reading or prayer, that God's going to punish us. Or if we feel if we don't give money to the church, or God will not bless us, or we're going to get into this performance trap in our efforts to be accepted by God. We volunteer for everything and never say no because we fear God will not truly love us and approve of us. If you have trouble believing God accepts you, if you have difficulty accepting the fact that God loves you, if you feel that you have to do something extra in God's eyes, then you have something in common with the woman crawling across the square on her hands and knees at Mexico City. And trying to earn God's favor is a hopeless thing. These performances are a terrible burden, and you can never know if you've done enough to please God. Today, if you're struggling with your acceptance before God, then Philippians 3 will be a breath of fresh air as we go through this chapter. You will learn that you no longer have to perform to get God's approval. Rather, you will discover that God is appeased through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. You will learn that in the midst of an unbelieving society, joy comes in knowing that God is going to accomplish His will, and He's doing His will at this moment. And that is such wonderful truth that our performance in, in, in acceptance before God, our approval is to, in Jesus Christ. It's not in anything we can do. Our identity is distinctive. Look at verse 3. Not only is it dangerous, our identity is a dangerous because we can be open to false teaching, uh, but we should have great delight, but be aware of the danger, which Paul is going to talk about more. But our identity is distinctive. We are described here. Look at the description in verse 3, for we are the true circumcision. Now this is a different word. In Colossians 2.11, uh, the Apostle Paul said that in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. We are identified. Our covenant promised identity is with Jesus Christ. In the church age, in which this age we live now, which began in Acts chapter 2, 
The physical circumcision is not a requirement for entrance into a relationship with God. It's not required. Faith, not circumcision, was the basis of God's covenant with Abraham. Romans 9, even going clear back. Circumcision of the heart, that is the spirit of trust and obedience, is what God desires, Romans chapter 2. Here in Philippians 3.3, the, the Apostle Paul is emphasizing that true circumcision is a changed heart. A changed heart, not a changed body. Believers in Christ are said to be circumcised in him. In other words, we have a new heart. We are changed. And then there's three distinctives, three distinctives here in, in verse 3, as the result of our identity that we are a true, the true circumcision. First one is worship. Worship. Look at this. Believers worship in the Spirit, worship God in the Spirit. John 4.24 talks about worshiping God in spirit and in truth, a distinctive experience of the Holy Spirit. We see here that uh, because believers in the church age are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that we have a direct relationship, which is called the priesthood of the believer. Every believer is a priest. We don't need to go through another person, another pastor, a priest, or whatever, because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a distinctive experience with the Holy Spirit. You can pray directly to God. You can talk to him. Secondly, in verse 3, we have glory. There's a glory here. We have a distinctive exaltation of Christ. Believers boast in Christ Jesus. We don't boast in our accomplishments or in our performance. We boast in Christ Jesus. So worship, glory. The third one is confidence a distinctive expression of self-distrust. We put no confidence in our flesh. And that's what the Apostle Paul is warning us about. These false teachers were saying, oh, you've got to put confidence in your flesh in following the Old Testament law and doing this. And we have that with us today. There are very famous preachers out there on the Internet who are telling you that you have to... Uh, repent and be baptized, or you have to make Jesus Lord of your life. These are mutilators of the gospel. Jesus is the one who has given us salvation. We are described there. So our identity is, should cause us delight. Our identity should cause us to recognize that there is danger in the false teaching, and our identity is distinctive. It is distinctive. Philip Yancey uh, writes this uh, in one of his books. He said, not long ago, I received an email, uh, uh, excuse me, he received a, a postcard in the mail from a friend and only had six words on it. And these are the words his friend wrote to him. It's, quote, I am the one Jesus loves, unquote. What would you imagine if you got a letter like that? Yancey goes on to say, I smiled when I saw the return address, for my strange friend excels at these slogans. When I called him, though, he told me the slogan came from uh, author, speaker, Brennan Manning. At the seminar he went to, Manning explained and referred to Jesus as closest friend on earth. Have you ever thought about that? A disciple named John, identified in the Gospels as the one who Jesus loved. Manning said, if John were to be asked, what is your primary identity in life? He would not reply, I'm a disciple, oh, I'm an apologist, 
uh, I'm an apostle, I'm an evangelist, I'm the author of one of the four Gospels. John wouldn't say that. He would say, I am the one that Jesus loves. What would it mean, I ask myself, if I come to the place where I saw my primary identity in life as the one that Jesus loves, how differently would I view myself and my circumstances and this whole world events at the end of the day? Uh, sociologists have a theory, uh, it's called the looking glass self, the looking glass self. And you become what is the most, you become what the most important person in your life, whether it's your parents or your wife or your, your, your husband or uh, father or mother, whoever that is, thinks about you. How would your life change if you truly believe the Bible's astounding words about God's love for you, and if you looked in the mirror and saw what God sees, are you the one that Jesus loves? Of course, he loves all of us, for God so loved the world. Is there anything that can make God love you more or less? No, because he sees us in Jesus Christ. Well, next session, <clears throat> we are going to continue in our study of this and position as believers in Christ as the Apostle Paul. He describes his own pedigree, he describes his history, and he describes the danger of trusting in our flesh, trusting in the things uh, that will not get us into heaven. Spiritual mind is marked by the delight in Christ, confidence in Christ, and the accurate perspective of ourselves in Jesus Christ. So this morning, we are thankful that you are here. And uh, I want to send you out with a benediction. Remember, a benediction literally means to speak well towards. It has a connotation of blessing. And it is spoken that you would receive it with power and move boldly into your next few days, your next world, with what God has called you to be. Listen to this benediction from Hebrews 13. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with every good thing for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. Go in God's grace and we'll see you next time. <music>